The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, August 16th, 2020, on the basis of 1 Kings 19, verses 9 through 18. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Racially charged protesting, unrest in America's city streets, and violence between citizens and law enforcement officers. I was reading about some of these things this past week, but I was reading about them in a place that might surprise you a little bit. I was actually reading about them in a sermon that I had written three years ago this weekend. As some of you know here at Good News, like at a lot of Christian churches, we follow this schedule of assigned scripture readings that determines what we're going to hear when we gather here in God's house and what we are going to focus on. And that schedule is like a cycle that repeats itself every three years. So three years ago, this weekend, we heard these same scripture readings. And in fact, I preached on these same verses from 1 Kings chapter 19. And so I figured I would go back and, and read the sermon that I had written back then. And when I did, I was reminded that at that time, we had just gone through those racially charged protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, the unrest in our country that came from those protests. And then that very same week, there were some coordinated attacks against law enforcement officers in several different cities throughout our country. Now, the people involved with those incidents were different, and some of the causes behind them were a little bit different. But the simple fact that as we sit here today, three years later, at least in a, in a general way, we're sort of dealing with a lot of the same issues in our country sort of illustrates a point. You see, we are conditioned to believe that no matter what the problem is, we're going to find a solution. In fact, we're conditioned to believe that we are going to find that solution quickly. And so if we were to zoom out and look at a slice of history, even one as small as just three years of time, I think we would expect to see that there has been progress made, that there has been change that has taken place, that things are better than they were before. And yet sometimes when we really take a look, when we look at the cold hard facts, we realize that maybe, maybe that's not the case. And when that happens, when we have that realization, it is very easy for us to get caught up in a turbulent, violent storm. Not the kind of storm that Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples were struggling against in today's gospel. Not a, a literal storm on a literal body of water, but a storm where our human hearts are sort of like the surface of that water. And instead of that surface being glassy smooth the way that we would like it to be, the surface of that water is choppy. It is full of all kinds of waves, waves that take us up high one moment, but then take us down low the next. And unlike a, a literal storm, which is something that just sort of happens to us, whether we try to avoid it or not, it's something that we simply experience, the storm I'm talking about is one that we actually cause ourselves. That when we expect certain things to happen in our world, we expect certain things out of people. We even expect certain things out of God. And then those expectations aren't met. It sure is easy for us to get our hearts all stirred up in a frenzy. 
And so thankfully today we're going to see that just as Jesus demonstrated his power over the wind and the waves in today's gospel, so also as we look at these verses from 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to see that God has the power and God knows how to calm those storms that we stir up in our own hearts. As we're going to see, we might have all kinds of ideas about how those storms are best put to rest and best stilled. But as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see that the Lord knows best how to still and calm our self-inflicted storms. The man who was going through and experiencing one of these self-inflicted storms was the prophet of the Lord named Elijah. And the reason Elijah was going through one of these storms was, in a word, zeal. Elijah knew that he was fighting on the side of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the old translations used to say. So not only is the Lord himself very powerful, but he is a Lord who commands an entire army of angels that are at his disposal and at his command. And Elijah knew that he was fighting on that God's side. And so he expected that as a result, he was going to see things change. He was going to see certain things happen. Specifically, there was this back and forth battle going on between Elijah and the wicked king who ruled in Israel at that time, a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were trying to lure God's people away from worshiping the one true God and instead into worship of false gods named Baal and Asherah. Meanwhile, Elijah was trying his best to pull people back to worshiping the Lord, the one true God. This back and forth battle sort of reached its high point on top of a mountain called Carmel, way up in the northern part of Israel, where all of God's people had the opportunity to pick once and for all who were, they, who were they going to worship, either the false gods or the Lord, the one true God. And on top of that mountain, the Lord had rained down fire from heaven on the altar that Elijah had built, demonstrating beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was the one true God. And so no doubt, after that impressive display, Elijah thought, that all of the people would come back to the Lord's side. In fact, maybe even Ahab and Jezebel would wise up and start worshiping the Lord too. And yet we are told that right after that seemingly triumphant victory, Jezebel vowed that she would put Elijah to death, just like she had done with so many other prophets of the Lord. And that's what sent Elijah into this tailspin. That's what caused the waters of his heart to be full of turmoil. Elijah took off from the northern part of Israel all the way down to the south. In fact, he ended up going out into the desert a journey of 40 days until he came to this place called Mount Horeb, believe it or not, also known as Mount Sinai. And there the Lord appeared to him and asked him what he was doing, and that's when it all came out. In fact, it came out twice with exactly the same words, twice. Elijah told the Lord how zealous he had been. In fact, a, a little bit more literally translated, here's kind of what Elijah said. He said, Lord, I have been so zealous for you, but these people, as for these people, well, your covenant, they've broken it, and, and your altars, they've torn them all down, and your prophets, they've put them all to death, and now my own life, they're looking to take it too. Not only did Elijah tell the Lord how zealous he was. He told the Lord very zealously how zealous he was. His heart was in absolute turmoil. He was caught up 
in a self-inflicted storm. Now, it's probably worth pointing out that in and of itself, zeal is not necessarily a bad thing. Zeal can be a very good thing, but zeal can very easily be misplaced. We can be zealous for the things that we want or the things that we assume God wants instead of the things that God has actually revealed to us that he wants. And so just like the prophet Elijah, it might be easy for us to think, well, we're on the side of, of the one true God, the Lord Almighty, and we are working zealously on his side, and so certainly we should expect certain things to happen as a result of that. Maybe the change that we are looking for is societal change, for people to start thinking a little bit differently or treating each other a little bit differently, for so-and-so to get elected or for such-and-such such a policy to pass into law. After all, of course, God wants our nation to be a good, godly nation and for us to have upright laws and leaders, right? Or maybe the, the change that we are zealous for is change that is moral improvement in our lives. We know that there's this area that, that needs some improvement, but now we've identified it and now we're, we're going all in. We are fully committed. We are going to kick that habit once and for all. We are going to break ourselves free from the shackles of that sin. We are never going to do that thing again. Because, of course, God wants us to just be able to, to improve and, and get better and eliminate all of the sin from our life. Maybe the change that we are looking for is the way that we feel and what we experience when we spend time with God. Maybe we would hope that every time that we open up God's word, we would absolutely be captivated and enthralled the way that we are with a best-selling novel, or that, that when we come to church, we are just filled with so much excitement and joy that it almost overwhelms us, because of course, wouldn't God want us to feel that way about who he is and about spending time with him? As I thought about all, all the things that are somewhat similar to the way that they were three years ago, there's one thing that's very different today. Today I'm standing in front of a young man who is going to be installed as our vicar this morning, a young man who is aspiring to be a pastor. I think we'd all agree that one of the traits that is good for pastors to have is the trait of zeal, to be zealous for the work that they do. And yet even a pastor's zeal can be very easily misplaced. Maybe a pastor's misplaced zeal looks something like this, that the change he is looking for or or the action he is looking to see is that each and every sermon he would preach, each and every Bible class that he would teach would just blow people's minds and change their lives forever and they would never be the same. Or that once word started to get out about their incredible gifts and their winning personalities, people would just be pounding on the doors and shoving each other to try and find a seat in church. Because of course, wouldn't God want his word to have that effect in people's lives and, and wouldn't God want those kinds of things to happen in his churches. It is very easy for us to be zealous for things that we think God wants instead of the things that God has revealed to us that he actually wants and plans to do in our life. And, and when we do that, it's very easy for us to end up exactly where Elijah ended up, in a cave, in the dark, all by ourselves, bitter, angry, frustrated, ready to give up, caught right in the middle of a self-inflicted storm. But thankfully, Elijah hadn't given up entirely. 
In fact, his trip down to Mount Horeb may well have been sort of a last-ditch effort to really try and figure out what God was up to and what his plan would be. I mean, if ever there was a place where Elijah could expect God to show up and expect God to do what only God can do, it was that mountain called Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. At that very mountain, God had appeared to his people as they were led by Moses, as they were coming out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land. And so when Elijah showed up at Mount Horeb, yes, one more time, God did in fact show up, but not in the way Elijah expected. Elijah did get to see some things, things that were probably the, the kind of things that he was hoping to see. First, there was this earth-shattering wind. And sure, it was powerful, sure, it was impressive, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, and it too was powerful and impressive, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire, and that too, powerful, impressive, but God was not in the fire. And so finally, this still small voice, this gentle whisper from the Lord, and that's where the Lord was to be found. And unlike the wind and the fire and the earthquake, which left Elijah stuck in that cave, perhaps even still trembling in fear, when Elijah heard the whisper, it drew him out. He came out of the cave to hear what the Lord had to say. A still small voice, a, a gentle whisper, sort of the last thing you would expect from God, the last way you might expect him to affect change and to do the things that we assume he's going to do in our lives and in our world. A, a gentle whisper is sort of the opposite of what we think of when we think of strong and passionate zeal. And yet this gentle whisper was really just a pattern of the way that God always chooses to work in our world. In fact, several centuries later, when our Savior Jesus came down from heaven to do the work he needed to do as our Savior, there were lots of people in his day, too, who were very zealous. And yet their zeal, just like Elijah's, was misplaced. They were zealous for someone to come and overthrow the Roman government, someone to come and restore Israel's glory days. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples, a disciple by the name of Simon, is referred to in the Gospels as a zealot. He belonged to this political faction, you might say, whose job it was, whose mission it was, to do that one very thing, to help Israel become free from the Romans. But in contrast, Jesus, well, Jesus was, was just the opposite. Yes, Jesus was zealous for many things, but he was zealous for what God actually wanted, not what people assumed. God wanted. In contrast to a lot of those very zealous people, Jesus did not come to overthrow the Roman government. In fact, he came to submit himself to a Roman trial, a Roman verdict, a Roman sentence, and finally a Roman execution on a cross. Doesn't look like a very zealous thing to do. And yet through that gentleness, through that submission to God's plan, he, of course, won forgiveness and salvation for the whole world. And now in a very same way, God uses this gentle whisper, not power, not force, but a gentle whisper to calm the self-inflicted storms of our hearts. In fact, even as we look at the specific thing that the Lord said to Elijah, we might be tempted 
to think that God's going to do a lot of very big, powerful, impressive things. I mean, there's going to be new kings getting installed, and there's going to be people getting put to death. It sounds like heads are really going to roll when Elijah comes back down from Mount Horeb. But as we read on and follow the history that ensued after this, none of this, none of what the Lord talks about in these verses happened quickly at all. It took years, in fact, maybe even several decades for all of the things that the Lord is talking about to actually take place. But in the meantime, the Lord wanted Elijah to know that still small voice, that gentle whisper was doing the very thing that God wanted it to be doing in Israel. There were 7,000 people in Israel. Elijah thought he was all by himself, but the Lord told him 7,000 people who had never once bowed down and worshipped Baal. You know, it really is quite silly when you think about it, this idea that the very thing that causes these self-inflicted storms in our hearts would then somehow be the solution to those storms or make those storms go away. That when our own misplaced zeal causes our hearts to be full of turmoil, we are tempted to think that more zeal is going to be the answer somehow. Either more zeal from God in things like wind or fire or earthquake, big fireworks and theatrics in our world, or maybe even more zeal from us. That somehow the solution to what really upsets us is more rage, more anger, more getting upset. As if that's what God needs from us. As if the very thing that is causing all of that turmoil in our hearts could somehow make it go away. Instead, God answers that turmoil with a still, small voice, a soft, gentle whisper. And it's that voice that assures us, just like it did Elijah, that no matter what might be going on in society, every president that is elected or every president that is unelected, every nation that rises and every nation that falls, does so at the command of the Lord. It's that still small voice that assures us that no matter how much moral improvement we make or don't make in our lives, each and every sin that we commit has been forgiven by him. It's that still small voice that assures us that whether we feel all fired up about the word of God and feel his closeness and his love in our life or not, he is with us regardless of how we might feel about it. We might have all kinds of ideas about God, how God should take those self-inflicted storms and calm them, but God knows best how to calm those self-inflicted storms. He uses the still, small voice of his word. So, you know, I, I started thinking, I wonder what would happen if three years from now I pulled out this sermon and read it and tried to figure out what was different about our world at that time or what was the same. Would there be a lot of improvement or would things still look relatively similar? If we were to think about our lives, would we have made a lot of improvement or, or would we still be stuck in some of the same sins? Would pastors be all fired up about sharing the word of God and would they have people who were just as fired up to hear it and to go share it with others? Of course, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to be the same. I don't know what is going to be different. But I do know that no matter the storm, as we are going to sing in just a few minutes, Christ is a sure and steady anchor. That no matter how we might get our own hearts all stirred up, our Lord does and always will know how best to still them. And so friends, no matter what may stay the same or no matter what may change, 
the wonderful thing is that we know Christ will always be the same. Amen.